So it was always plan A. It's not that God's blameworthy for Adam's sin, but Adam's sin was always written into the script so that Jesus is written into the script. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's not that, at, that Jesus came and died to remediate Adam's sin, but that Adam's sin prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast. We're seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover the gospel. Today, well, we continue today a series called According to Scripture. We're looking at some Christian ideas, but we're going back to the Old Testament to find them. Yeah. Uh, on the idea, on the assumption that God always had this one message and he was always preaching it from the beginning or laying the groundwork for it at least. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about original sin today. What the heck is original sin? My wife and I were talking about it the other day. It came up in conversation. Her Anglican friend was explaining to her that she, her friend who had become Anglican was explaining to her how it made sense to her what the Anglicans had taught her about how infant baptism removes the guilt of original sin. And I was like, oh yeah, that's like a Roman Catholic thing. I guess that's you know, why the Anglican Church is the middle way between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Protestants don't believe in infant baptism. They don't believe in infant baptism for the removal of the guilt of original sin. Yeah. Well, um, evangelicals don't, I would say, yeah. Protestants. Yeah, if you consider Lutherans and yeah, that's uh, right. Methodists, the Presbyterians, they're all they have some some version of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah mainline Protestants. They, right. they're definitely into it. Yeah. yeah, so that's an old Catholic idea, and it, and it has some carryover to some Protestants. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that's at all what we're going to talk about today, but that's probably what a lot of people no. think of whenever they hear a, the term original sin. Sure. What are you yeah. talking about, Nathan? Yeah. Well, you know, last time we talked about that God's God's dream is for us to participate in His fellowship, this eternal community. Um, and that eternal life is wrapped up in participation in an eternal community. And that, that our participation in that community with God is experienced and demonstrated through the way that we treat one another. And so we participate in this one flesh union with the church um, as an expression of our one flesh union with Christ, and since Christ is united in the Trinitarian community, then we are folded into that community. It's a crazy mystery, right? Um, now, what could mess all that up? <laughs> well, if we assume that's a voluntary community, right? I mean, all of this love and joy and happiness, you know, if, if someone's actually you know, shackled to the bed in the basement, they're probably not the most participatory partner in a marriage or whatever right um, you know if, if you're like on misery right mm -hmm. and you're and you're uh, a captive certainly not going to be able to offer the kind of, of love that's presumed in this fellowship and so freedom is underpins this um, and we talk a lot about free will and why that's important why people continue to do evil and God allows them to do that and it is that freedom is paramount because it is a part of this this union this goal to incorporate humanity into the eternal fellowship right and so Jesus comes to earth and he faces this heinous experience right in the in the cross but we're constantly reminded that he is offering himself willingly and freely. If he were a victim, then the whole flavor of the story would change, right? 
Um, and in the same way, we are invited to participate fully, freely in this, in this relationship of trust and love, even in the midst of a broken world. Now, why is the world broken? Ah, there comes original <laughs> sin. Yes, yeah. So there's there's this something happened, right? Mm -hmm. Now, um, so if you remember the story, there are these two trees, right? And one of them is the tree of life, and the other is the tree of death. Obviously. Ah, oh, you obviously, think? You would think, right? Uh, but and one is the tree of good, and the other. The tree of bad. Of evil. <laughs> <laughs> right? Obviously, you're gonna gotta tell a good story. Keep your parallelism in line, man. You mm -hmm. know? Don't don't have the tree of zebras and the tree of Volkswagens. Uh -huh. You know, that these things just are not related to one another. But the, you have the tree of life over here and you have the tree of the knowledge. knowledge right? The knowledge of good and evil. Uh-huh. Now how do we see religion? Just sidetrack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's the purpose of religion and religious training? Well, I mean, I think what you're getting at is that we tend to make it about knowing good and evil. Yeah. Right? Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Yeah. How and, ironic. And, and do what's right. Yeah. Don't do what's wrong. Yeah. How ironic. Uh, I won't get off on my so this, Mormon you, bashing. You, yeah. you, could, you could call it the tree of religion. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's this, this tree of life over here and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and there's something about trying to grasp that, right? So uh, Adam and Eve, they're living out this one flesh union and it's expressed in one verse. And, and the verse is this, Genesis 2:25. Uh, Adam and his wife, the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Mm -hmm. And so... This nudity, I suppose, uh, there's an innocence there, um, and and yet I, th I think that it's more than just physical nudity, uh, just because they felt no shame. You imagine if the, if the idea of shame was just, it had never existed in your society, mm -hmm. that no one had ever done anything that caused them to feel shame, that they'd never... Um, were participatory, you know, they didn't, they didn't jump over there and do something that others in the society would be aghast at, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, what would that be like? You know, there's, there's an old saying, hide nothing, have nothing to hide. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that kind of encapsulates the experience of this one flesh union that Adam and Eve had, that there was this openness between them, yes, physically, but I, I think in all ways. If if shame doesn't come in, then there's nothing. There's no secret life. That there's an expression of of uh, unbroken intimacy and union that is probably never you know been seen fully in in human history or human experience since then. Um, but something happens, right? So this serpent. Um, and however you imagine that happening, right? So this, the snake starts talking to the lady or big lizard or dragon, uh, you know, whatever it was. It was a reptile with legs, mm -hmm. apparently. So maybe it was a, it was a dinosaur. Um, and uh, and this thing starts talking to the woman. It's subtle, and it um, suggests that maybe God 
doesn't have their best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. He sows a seed of doubt or distrust right. in the woman. Yes. And so while there's been a prohibition, and the prohibition is don't eat from that tree, the, the root of that, of that violation that we know is coming is, is mistrust. Uh, he says, has, has God really said, you must not eat from any tree in the garden, right? So has God goodwilled? I mean, did he plant all this fruit just for you to, to be deprived of? And well, no, no, we can eat all of it, but there's that one, you know. Um, and then he says, you, you won't certainly die for God knows, right? You don't know, but he knows. Mm -hmm. He's keeping you in the dark. And we've spoken before about this Luciferian uh, value system that, that sounds exactly like this, that don't trust the powers that be, they are keeping you in the dark. And you know, in, in human society, they probably are. But when we begin to entertain a suspicious mindset, and, and this is what makes me afraid for um, many people who've become um, such conspiracy theorists and stuff, and hey, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I always say, uh, I, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. It's just that these guys are so bad at covering their tracks, you know. So I, I understand conspiracy theories, but I think we have to be very concerned for our heart as we begin to be just suspicious of our reality. It starts to bleed over onto our relationship with God. I would be willing to lay odds that the more conspiracy theories somebody entertains, the less they pray. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The more a person prays, the less Fox News, <laughs> you know, or whatever, the less they find themselves wallowing in all of this um, fear and this uh, paranoia. Um, and just because you're paranoid doesn't mean everybody's out, not out to get you. But if, you, if we're very connected to God, then it doesn't really matter so much if they're out to get us anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so all that to say is, is that, these, uh, the, that this relationship in the garden, this eternal life, it wasn't inherent to them, but it was predicated on participation in a fellowship. And what does the serpent do? He goes after that fellowship. By going uh, after their trust. Right, right. Their faith. Right, and so without that, then another operating system takes hold. So he tells them, God's holding out on you. He knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll know good and evil like him. Right. Is that what he tells them? Right, yeah. So there's this offer to live a life that is self-sufficient, independent. Remember, God's inviting humanity to a fellowship um, that is predicated on trust. And... Now, Satan is offering a self-sufficiency. He's saying, if you have this knowledge, you can navigate your way to eternal life without him. Right? And so that, the knowledge of good and evil doesn't have so much to do with, like, existential good and evil, what moral good and evil is so much as it has to do with that which is beneficial and harmful. And if you know what is beneficial and harmful, you'll know how to live your life. And survive. Right. And live. Right. Yeah, you'll avoid the hazards, you will access the benefits, um, and you won't need anybody to help you. Uh -huh. Right. And so that's, that's the hope. Um, so you have on one side, you have an operating system that's predicated on trust. And on the other side, you have one that's predicated on 
lust, uh, well, predicated on mistrust, um, but just as the trust leads to love, and we'll talk about that, uh, so the mistrust leads to lust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The opposite of love isn't hate. God hates things and he is love. Okay, so this idea that if, you know, if you have the love of God, you're always, you know, happiness and roses is not, it's, it's, that's a lampoon of, of God's love. Okay, um, but God's, God's love is this participation in, in a fully orbed relationship, an inclusion of a whole person and a giving of one's whole self, like the marital union, okay? Now, if you take away that kind of, that trust and that giving of oneself, what you get is, is prostitution. You get a transactional approach to reality. And so lust becomes about acquiring for me and not missing out on what I might obtain for myself. It becomes about protection of my own ego because I'm now the center of the universe um, according to my decision set. Now, if everybody goes into the universe um, vying for the position of Almighty, that's not yeah, good. war, right? Right. Yeah, that's what um, we were just watching the show the other day, and the bad guy was talking about the um, just the beauty of a of a lie, mm -hmm. and he says, "You, you know, when you live in the lie." you get both all of the power and all of the adoration. And I'm like, wow. Great <laughs> I mean, it's making the hair stand up. You know, it's like, that is a powerful insight. And that is exactly the uh, demonic, satanic operating system. Mm -hmm. Live in the lie and, and obtain what belongs to God. Adoration and power. Mm -hmm. This is what we aspire to. I can have the power to live my life my own way. And have uh, and have uh, the glory and the praise of others because I'm because the lie tricks them into thinking I'm good. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's this ancient aspiration to godhood. I mean, that's what he offers. That's what the serpent offers. You will be like God, mm -hmm. right? The irony is, is that God's inviting us into a, the real participation, not the facsimile mm -hmm. of who He is, but the real inclusion into His community, and yet. Uh, the woman and the man, you know, are tricked into relinquishing that in to have the facsimile of, of the divine likeness, um, to just have the, the parts that seem pleasant, uh, mm -hmm. right? The, the adoration and the power that belong to God. And so that's really the essence of sin. Uh, we see that the woman, she, uh, she saw that it was good for food. There's, there's really three elements to this, right? It was good for food. It was pleasing to the eyes and that it was useful to make one wise, right? And then you get to 1 John 2. 1 John is a commentary on this. 1 John 2 is a commentary on the Genesis story. Yeah, well, it, you know, when John says in 1 John 2, 16, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. See, there's two operating systems there. There's, you know, there's two origin points, that which comes down from above, that which rises up from beneath, right? Mm -hmm. And so there, it, that which rises from beneath, lust of the flesh, she saw that the tree was good for food. 
lust of the eyes, um, she saw that it was pleasing to the eye. And the pride of life, she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, right? So, and it's just an ancient temptation. It is the essence of sin. And I, and I say that because we're, when we talk about original sin, what we're really talking about is the fact that sin isn't just breaking a command. That's kind of where we're going. Sin is a, is a reality. Um, it is a, a natural consequence and a spiritual reality. It's not just the breaking of a command. The breaking of a command is ancillary to what sin actually is. Um, and that's important to note because Paul comes in with a law-free gospel, right? As it, when Paul is Paul is proclaiming a gospel, and he's saying, "Now you can shuck the law." Mm-hmm. Okay, so because how are Jew and Gentile ever going to get together if there's a law in the way? Because mm-hmm. the Gentiles are never going to conform, mm-hmm. and even if they do, some Jews will think that other Jews are not fully following the law as they understand it. Mm-hmm. How do people become one flesh again? Right now. Back to the garden. How do we get right. back to the garden? That right. one flesh union with God. Right. And our, our fear is is that if we live without law, that we will live, um, that that presumes a life that is in anarchy. What we call lawless. Right. Lawlessness. And that is not the same thing at all. Right. Um, but that, that we must be without law, not lawless. And we'll talk about the, what the difference in those two are. But... We must be without written law because law will always inhibit um, our coming together in one flesh. Uh, you remember how we talked about how um, that that we in in Ephesians two there's this demonstration of the one flesh union where he talks about he has made he's our peace right mm-hmm. and he's made the two one groups. But how did he do it? He's destroyed the barrier, Ephesians 2.14, the dividing wall of hostility. What's that dividing wall of hostility? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Mm -hmm. That's part and parcel. So God's own law, the the law, was in the way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so we have to have a doctrine of sin that transcends the, the definition of violating a law if we're going to define righteousness apart from the law. Okay, so lawlessness would be what Eve is doing. Okay, there's this, this pursuit of what pleases the self, the ego, the lust. That's lawlessness. Okay, we are called to follow a law, but it's just not a written code. James calls it the perfect law that gives liberty. And then he tells us what it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's constantly updating. We don't need any lawyers. You know, we get we, we can just live this out, right? And so there's this there's this inclusion in the community that presumes a lifestyle that is not predicated on a list of injunctions and prohibitions, regulations, that there's something else, okay? And so that's really where we're headed. But we have to understand sin. I think, in order to give us the freedom to turn loose of our written code. The reason we immediately default to a legalistic mentality, and, and I'm talking about every evangelical church out there, 
if you say, hey, we're not saved by works, but we do have to work, and by that you mean obey a set of instructions in the Bible, you're a legalist. I don't care that you left a caveat out there, okay? Because you, because that's the operating system of your life. That's the way you're functioning, okay? And if you're functioning on law, even though you say, well, you're, you're justified by, you know, the, what the Catholics called the legal fiction, okay? If that's the thing you're counting on, but you, but practically speaking, you're, you're looking for commands and you're trying to follow those, it's still legalism. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and people are afraid to relinquish that, and and that's why it requires. They're afraid faith. of this to lawlessness. Exactly, it's why it requires faith. So that's where we're going. So what is original sin? Why is the why does this doctrine come up? Okay, so sin is this experiential reality. Yes, it was a violation of a command, but it brought death. Remember. Uh, the warning was the day you eat of it, you will die. So what happened? They oh, they it. didn't die. That's the weird thing about it. That's right. the weird thing about the story. They <laughs> yeah. didn't die. Right? What happened? Yeah. Well, they got. They became ashamed. They hid from God. Mm-hmm. Um, they covered themselves, but they didn't die. Right. At least not the way we think of dying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's got like one of these permissive parents. It's like I, talk, you know, I, Johnny, I told you not to do that. Now don't do it again. You know, did, did he just kick the can down the road? Did he, you know, say, like, okay, I'm just giving you 900 more years to get this right. You know, uh, to sit in the corner for 900 years. Um, what happened? Did you know? Is God's was God's warning empty? Uh, did he just decide, man? I guess that was just too much to ask of them. You know mm-hmm. what? What's right. the deal? Right. Um, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I, I think we've always been sort of stumped by this, but and surely if we're given um, God the benefit of the doubt in the story, they did die in the day that they ate of it. They died spiritually. Yeah. And what is spiritual death? Um, it seems to be this alienation from really this harmony that they were in so you know, they were in harmony with their environment right and they were in this this garden and they had work to do but it wasn't toil um they were in harmony with their with themselves with you know with each other uh, obviously they're out of they're out of harmony with themselves anytime you feel shame it means that you've done something that you either regret or you know you should not have done right so if you're if you're hiding, so they're alienated from God, they're really fractured, dissonant within themselves as individuals. They are separated from one another. So there's this dissolution that happens at the point of, of sin. Okay, and so really, I doubt if we could go back and do a chemical analysis on this fruit that it really had any sort of particularly lethal properties in it mm-hmm. you know if there even if there were such a thing as the, as literal fruit you know mm-hmm. if this is a literal story or if it's um, representative story maybe it's a way to put it um, but that the act of, of there's this depiction of, of reaching out mm-hmm. you know and grasping mm-hmm. grasping um, equality with God mm-hmm 
Does it sound like mm-hmm. a, oh, yeah. a verse that you Oh, can you're think alluding of? <laughs> to Philippians 2. Yes. Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not desire, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Uh-huh. Yeah. But he emptied himself. Right. Now you see how Jesus becomes the anti-Adam, right? His, mm-hmm. All of his actions are the reverse of the Adamic sin, mm-hmm. right? That there's not this grasping, but there is a relinquishing in Jesus. And uh, wow, what a, what a powerful idea. So, um, which gets to this idea of, of original sin. Why did God do this? So, um, Paul makes this, this case. He says um, in Romans 5.12, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. That's original sin. Because all sinned, right? That's what we've come to call original sin. So, Paul seems clearly to be saying that all of Adam's progeny has, have experienced death, right? Just by, just by virtue of being banished from the garden. If you're born outside of the garden, you're, you're born dead. If, you're if born the garden dead. was the place of God's immediate presence, uh-huh. you know, if you, if you remember the story of Cain and Abel. So here they are, they're just in the borderlands of the garden. Mm-hmm. And Cain kills his brother, and God says, now you've got to have to leave this region. So even being in the borderlands of the garden, Cain realized this is the immediate presence of God. He's like, don't, don't cast me from your presence. Now I'm going to be out there among those godless people. Where, who are they? Where did they come from? We talk about that in another episode. But uh, at any rate, that, that this immediate presence of God was lost just through the banishing from the garden. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying that, you know, the death spread to all people. So everyone's born now outside of this fellowship. Everyone's born spiritually dead. Right. Yeah. In, the, in this disintegrated way, mm-hmm. internally disintegrated way. Right. Yeah. Uh, Saul Alinsky, um, the activist and political commentator, he said this. He says, uh, the one who fears corruption fears life. He says, uh, corruption is, uh, I can't remember how he, how he said it, but basically he was saying that corruption begins the minute a, a child learns to play his father off against his mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and so... He's saying this is the nature of, of human society. Right. You, now, can't, you can't function in this world if you can't embrace corruption. Right. Yeah, he's saying that if you want to actually make a difference, realize that corruption is, is a given. Mm-hmm. Don't spare yourself corruption because if you do, you won't accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's for nothing that he, you know, had that acknowledgement to Lucifer at the beginning of his book, um, Rules for Radicals. So this is a, um, he's teaching people how to get on board with the wisdom of the world. Saul Alinsky was. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's one path. You can say, hey, this is the way things are. It's kill or be killed. Mm-hmm. Let's let's master these methods and um, and participate in the fall in a way that will, at least to our own minds, prov- you know, provide the best possible life for people. Mm-hmm. Um, at least the people that we choose worthy <laughs> of the best possible life, right? 
Um, but anyway, so this original sin, now we may say, uh, that's not fair. Right? I, it's funny that you have an atheist Jew named Alinsky who recognizes that corruption is implicit to human experience, um, and yet someone out there might deny that original sin is a thing. Uh, you mean the same person might deny the original sin is a thing? Yeah, or just maybe the, the average run-of-the-mill Christian would say, no, God, you know, God gives everybody the chance to, to perform, uh-huh. and uh, that he's not going to stack the deck against you. He's going to give you the chance to perform, and you're going to fail at it, but he's still going to give you that chance. It seems unfair to us to think that God is going to consider all people sinners, and allow them to to be born dead spiritually before they have the opportunity to do the right thing. That mm-hmm. sounds unfair, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we how do we deal with that, right? I mean, Paul, or even even the book of Ezekiel, it, it talks about how unfair it is for to you know confer on someone the consequences of another person's sin, of their progenitor's sin. In Ezekiel 18, he says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share in the guilt of the parent, nor the parents share in the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Mm-hmm. So how is it that the wickedness of Adam and Eve is credited to me? How is it that I'm born a sinner before I've even sinned? How is right. that fair? Right. Right. So, And that is the doctrine of original sin. Yes. All people are born sinners on account of the original sin. Right. And um, Ezekiel is addressing sin as violation or as a crime. So there is this reality to sin that we've said isn't, isn't necessarily a violation. So Ezekiel is writing to Jews who are under the law, and he's saying, if you violate the law, you're going to pay for it. And the law didn't prescribe penalty for the child of an adulterer, right? So let's say, you know, you go and and cheat on your wife, and now you're found out, and you and your mistress are going to be stoned to death under the Mosaic law. You know, it doesn't prescribe taking the person's children and doing that. So, you know, um, that there's a, a legal fairness to what Ezekiel is saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. But Paul isn't speaking of that, of sin as just transgression. Yeah. Acts of commission of a, a, a violation of right. specific laws. Right. And so we didn't, in Adam, we didn't, um, commit this we did in that we were in him but we're not really held accountable for that sin he says because all sinned but we are we are the heirs of the consequence of his sin and that through his transgression we have become um the violators okay so hang on do you mean do you mean do you mean that we're violators because we were in him or do you mean that we're violators in our own lives, in our own sins, on account of the fact that we're born sinners? Right. Yeah. The latter, uh, and and maybe both. Uh, it, it's uh, we're born it sinful. Seems, 
Right, right. The consequence of Adam's transgression is conferred upon us, mm-hmm. right? And it's not so much of the legal infraction, because what he did wasn't a big deal, right? I mean, what? let's just say that somebody crawls over somebody's fence and takes from an orchard, you know, they, they crawl into an orchard and they take a four or five apples and they take them home mm-hmm. and they're found. Mm-hmm. And now we, we take them and, and we prosecute them. And what would be a fair sentence, you know? Is it just a capital offense? You know, you just, you just took some fruit that, didn't, that was prohibited you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the implications in, in this divine economy were, were far-reaching. They're beyond because of the distraction, because right. of the meaning of the act. Right. I'm going to go my own way. Exactly. Yeah. And this aspiration to godhood that really I think is at the basis of all sin and can only be reversed through this relinquishing as Jesus did. You know, that there's this divesting of self um, that becomes the antithesis of what Adam did. Um, so, um, so Paul says, he speaks of this original sin and how it's affected us in Romans 5. He says, to be sure, um, sin was in the world before the law was given, so the Mosaic law. So however much time there was from Adam to Moses, God hadn't been issuing any further sins. I mean, you have the Noahic covenant where God says, you know, the one who kills a man by man, um, his blood will be spilt or whatever. So it's kind of a capital punishment. It's a very basic law uh, of the Talon. But other than that, God doesn't bother. You know, God doesn't kick Adam out and says, hey, on your way out the door, you're going to need a list of behavioral instructions, you know, and, and pass these on that that the people are, are kicked out of the garden and they have no um, legal code mm-hmm. until Moses. And so Paul says, well, what about all of that? Mm-hmm. And he says, well, sin, it wasn't charged against their account where there is no law. Mm-hmm. There's no violations <laughs> right. of law. Right, yeah. So, Nevertheless, he says, right. death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Mo- Moses, mm-hmm. even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. Right. All right, so Paul seems to agree that, that legal guilt right, can't, is not transferable. We get that. And so seeing justification as entirely a legal phenomenon isn't isn't the best way. You know, it's it's not entirely accurate, just as legal guilt can't be transferred from one person to another. So, you know, the violations that one person does doesn't necessarily transfer, but what does transfer in this case is the consequences. So they were banished from God's immediate presence um, and they encountered this spiritual death. And so sin passed to all people in that we all live in this mistrust. Okay, so Adam, the legal guilt of Adam's infraction does not transfer to me. Right. But the condition right. of death Mm-hmm. transfers to me. Right, and death is the experience of this mistrustful life, this loss of the fellowship with God. Uh-huh. Right, and so 
if everyone's born out of fellowship with God, they're born under this operating system of the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, you know, how long will it be until they act out lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life? Mm-hmm. You've raised children, you know, it doesn't take very long. That's where the, because Paul says at the end of his little definition of, uh, of original sin, he adds, because all sinned. Right. Meaning, yeah. We all inherited this, we all were born into this state or this condition mm-hmm. that is the result of Adam's sin. Right. And as a result of being born into that condition, that environment, that with that posture of mistrust, we therefore sin in our own right. Right. And commit our own right violations. Right. Even without a law, because the, viol- the violation at its essence is lust it's it's behavior born of the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life rather than faith and trust and love right yes self-giving love right others oriented love yeah so there's this this way of living and and i think that the problem is the reason we oftentimes define righteousness and sin in terms of a legal code it's because we're looking for the bare minimum, <laughs> you know, we're looking for what is it I have to do to get to heaven and then I can go on and do my own thing. But that very mindset is the antithesis of this fellowship that we're being called into. Now, it may seem still unfair that everybody's born, you know, with the deck stacked against them. Um, and yet Paul brings this up because it's not about implicating God. It's about showing God's forethought mm-hmm. okay. in, in redemption through Christ. Right? Yeah. So, uh, where are we at now? Romans 5? Uh, yeah. Verses 15 to 17? Yeah. But the gift is not like the trespass. For it, Would you like for me to read it? Yeah, go. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Awesome. Uh, what's interesting about this is, is that he says um, the gift is not like the trespass. Okay. And, he, and he's just said that Adam is a pattern for Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wait. <laughs> so it's a, it's a pattern that is dissimilar from that which it is produces. Mm-hmm. So Adam is a pattern for Christ, and therefore Christ is unlike Adam. Hmm, that's confusing, isn't it? I always thought, what does that mean, right? Uh-huh. Um, but th- my problem is that I, I live in a modern world where we do things in other ways, um, the word for pattern is two posts, right? It had to do, and it comes from metallurgy, from coin making, minting coins. So if you want to make a coin and it's going to have the image of the emperor, what do you do, right? 
uh, you you carve out or you you create this die that is in the image of what you want, but in reverse. So where you want the coin to be um, to come forth and and to be raised up in certain places, the two posts is going to have to be depressed in those, in those places. places, right? It's going to have to be the mirror image. So it's going to have to be the reverse image. It's going to end, then it's going to have to be the exact antithesis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what Paul's talking about, which is why he goes from saying that Adam is the pattern of Christ to immediately saying Christ is not like Adam. Right. Okay, so this is, this is where you were saying where Adam grasped Christ relinquished. Right, yeah. Yeah, so... And notice that while Jesus did fulfill the Mosaic Law, I think he did that um, at his baptism. I think this was, while John the Baptist wasn't necessarily, his words and, and his ministry weren't written into the Torah, he came in the tradition of the prophets. And so Jesus has come to the last Old Testament prophet, and he says, you say we should be baptized, let's get baptized. John says, wait, no, I should be getting baptized by you. And, and Jesus is like, no, I got one box to check. Mm -hmm. He checks that box, what happens? Holy Spirit falls on him. Now he begins to live a Christian life. I used to say Jesus wasn't a Christian, I was wrong. And as a Christian, he begins to blow off the law. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a fully realized Jew, somebody who's living by the faith of the Son, as led by the Spirit, he has this fast and loose relationship with the law. Mm -hmm. um, at, because he's under a new standard, and this standard, according to Paul, is grace. It's not just grace received, but it is grace um, lived, grace expressed, grace given. Um, back in Romans 5, it says, by the grace of the grace that, that is given by the grace of one man. So Jesus really, he creates this grace bridge by, by not just fulfilling the law. Sure, he did that. That's like a substrate, okay? But the, real, the righteousness that confers is not legal righteousness. You can, and I can't remember where it is in the Old Testament where it talks about, you know, who, who can give their life for somebody else, you know. Um, and, and there's generally the idea that you can't. Mm. Uh, and just like in Ezekiel, I can't give my legal performance to you, okay. Um, the fact that I didn't ever break the law doesn't really accrue any credit, okay. It just puts me to zero. Mm -hmm. But what Jesus did was something he wasn't required by the law to do, right? In offering himself and laying down his life. The law would say he doesn't have to do that, right? The one that does these things will live. Mm -hmm. And so he relinquishes what's rightfully his, what he's really accrued, gives it. Now that's an act of grace, and that's the kind of life that we're called into by faith. We're called not to just legal performance and checking boxes. That's behind us. At the moment of your baptism, all legal claims against you are done. You know, when you, you say, hey, I'm, I'm laying myself down 
and I'm going to take up this new way. You receive the Holy Spirit. Now here's a whole new experience, a whole new expression. It's fast and loose with the law because the law is so far beneath it. It doesn't apply to somebody. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, the law wasn't given for righteous people. <laughs> you know? So now we're, we're living a righteousness that transcends law. So this is back to the garden of righteousness. This is trusting mm -hmm. and uh, loving. This is right. back to the Trinity righteousness where we talked about in previous episodes. Mm -hmm. The Father and Son and Holy Spirit together in love and trust. Right. And, and uh, according to this standard, I, we ought to always be living in a way that the world is standing in awe. They're, they're perplexed. You know? They're like, this, this doesn't seem like a, uh, an advisable thing to do from their perspective. But as it works out, then they are vindicating God. And I say this because with the, the recent kerfuffle in the Southern Baptist Convention, so here you have um, a group that's talking about kicking out churches, kicking out churches over yeah. over women in leadership, mm -hmm. right? And and so here you have churches a group, that make women pastors are getting kicked out, right? Yeah, Southern Baptist Convention, right, right. So let let's let's just cancel any legal approach, okay? Let's just go boom, and, and you know, let's just hit the buzzer and say there's just no there are no prescriptions right now what does what does the faith of Christ call the Christian movement to do when they discover there's been spiritual abuse in a church because that's what recently that's what we're coming off of right? yeah a year ago right right, yeah. right so you have the same group that is caught aiding and abetting abusers now taking a hard line, hard line stance against empowering women, right? Where's the hard line stance against aiding and abetting abusers? Where, right? Yeah, is that is that, your, is that what you're getting at? Well, I'm just saying if we take both of those issues, uh -huh. all right, abusers. Okay. One of the concerns, the reason that they did that was because they they saw that there was uh, there was something to be lost. We gotta cover this up. We've got because we can lose our lawsuits, our, our membership, witness, yeah. and members. Yeah. So there's much to lose. Our reputation. Yeah. Is that the faith of Christ? It's obviously no. It's not trusting. It's not entrusting outcomes to God. No. It's trying to control things ourselves. Right. Right. Now, is there is there a world in which telling women that they can't use their gifts? in the church is a loving thing to do at this juncture. I can't see it. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, I think that we have to see the things that Paul said about women in the first century in the context of um, that every, in every other way the Christian movement was very progressive. But there were obviously limitations that had in mind the advance of the gospel and the you know order in society and things like that. Whether he was right or wrong in that, not really my concern at this moment. I'm just saying, if we make the grace our standard and not law. Law being the New Testament in this case, because what the Southern Baptists are doing is obeying a law, which is the commands of 
the Apostle Paul, whatever they right. are, wherever they are, we have to make sure to do them. We're, right. we're, we're adhering to law and we're kicking out those who don't adhere to law. So that's your point. They're being legalists. Right. And they're not living by grace. Right. So Jesus, he lived by grace. And what did Paul say in Galatians 1? I'm astonished that you're so quickly removing yourself from the one who calls you to live in the grace of Christ. So the Galatians had no legal standard. Paul was only there three weeks, right? And when they try to go to a written standard, he gets up in their grill. He says, no, you were called to live in grace. Okay. And so that is this, that's the return to this fellowship with God, this, this participation in a relationship of affirmation to one another and um, just a second mile kind of giving to one another. That is the new expectation. Um, and I've gotten far afield. Yeah, because we were going to say how the uh, original sin right. prepared the way for this uh, era of grace that right. we now live in. Right, it does. So uh, it seems that Paul is saying that original sin was engineered that if condemnation, uh, and by condemnation, Paul has a, a twofold uh, a two-pronged idea of condemnation. Condemnation is both legal guilt and uh, the consequence of sin. So this spiritual death is a part of the condemnation. And for Paul, spiritual death has its natural consequence in physical death. Okay. So if we are living a fractured life, then we're spiritually dead. And if we're spiritually dead, we're slated for physical death. That's how it is. That's part of condemnation. The other part is this uh, blameworthiness, we'll say, right? Um, now, with Paul, he would, say, he would say that that blameworthiness element, that that infraction element isn't necessarily there where there's no legal standard. God gave one command, and Adam broke it, and in doing that, he brought, you know, this condemnation, but also the condemnation in terms of, of an infraction, on himself, but also conferred to his all of his legacy as he's made the federal head, right? So God is establishing this idea that one person, that their, their actions can bring about implications for everyone they represent. Mm -hmm. God created a representative system where one person's sin had these implications for everybody under them. Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, that's unfair, it, but that's really only unfair if you think somehow you would have made a different choice, mm -hmm. uh, which you wouldn't, uh, none of us would. Um, but because that, that which is unexplored is always going to draw us. Mm -hmm. You know, we're always going to be susceptible to that. So it was always plan A. It's not that God's blameworthy for Adam's sin, but Adam's sin was always written into the script so that Jesus is written into the script. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's not that, at, that Jesus came and died to remediate Adam's sin, but that Adam's sin prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. And that, I think that's the crucial difference that it is part and parcel of, of this redemption that God is bringing to humankind through Jesus 
righteousness and it's not a legal righteousness this is a, a trust this radical implicit trust express so it was always plan a it's not that god's blameworthy for adam's sin but adam's sin was always written into the script so that jesus is written into the script jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world it's not that at, that Jesus came and died to remediate Adam's sin, but that Adam's sin prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. Expressing itself in love, that could be summarized in the word grace. And grace is moral glory of God. And the moral glory of God is the standard that we're supposed to live by, which is why all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's the that's the aspiration that we would not just be living in conformity to a legal standard that we somehow find in the New Testament, but that we would be objectively gracious people. And we can only be that when our behavior is rooted in this operating system of faith. And so I would counsel, you know, myself and serious Christians stop trying to follow what Paul said in the New Testament to the detriment, to the hurt and the harm, not only of other people, but of the reputation of Christ in the world. Um, that it's grievous to, to me, and, and that's why there are real implications to understanding that it is not law, it's grace. And by grace, I don't just mean a big eraser in the sky. I mean a standard of behavior that can be recognized mm -hmm. as gracious. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Paul, when he talks about Jesus' righteousness, his act of righteousness, he's talking especially about his death, his yeah. self-giving love, his mm -hmm. self-sacrifice. And that seems to be then the standard of the of Christian. That's the Christian ethic, right? Right. That's our standard to live by, right? I mean, you were just quoting Philippians two. Well, that you know, Paul wasn't just theologizing, was he? No. How does no. he begin? He that? says, he says, have the same mind among yourselves, which was which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, yes, did not grasp for equality with God, but relinquished, yeah, emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of death. Mm-hmm. I mean, where and then he goes on to say, and so you too work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, right. it's like apply this ethic to your life. Right. Embrace it as your own. Right. And then he goes into, I plead with Yodia and with Syntyche, right, that you might be come together. So they're they're ironically here here are two women who are in a power dynamic. You know, they're in power play. And so there, there ought to be this default to relinquishing power. Um, and, and I think that's why inclusion and uh, equality and all of that, it, it has to come from the one who has power in the society. It can't be grasped by those who don't have it. We, those who don't have it um, find their power in God and in genuine submission to God and his will uh, doesn't mean we don't speak the truth, um, but it means that we don't use um, 
some sort of coercive means or manipulative means to achieve what we think is right because then we will immediately return to the fallen operating system mm -hmm. in our attempts to remediate what is unjust. And we then become the new oppressors even without knowing it. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is why faith is the only safe way to live because if we aspire to justice, we will just become the new oppressors every time. So there it is. Thanks everyone for joining us today. You may have some questions. You can email us at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. We'll see you next time.